Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name's Butch. I'm alcoholic. Is that thing working? Lower? Is that better? I want to thank uh, the committee for the opportunity and privilege of coming here this weekend and taking part in your convention, and uh, David for picking me up at the airport. Where'd he go? He just left? Oh, okay. The rat's leaving a ship. And uh, for David for doing that and your hospitality, and uh, I really truly want to thank you uh, for that. Thank the committee for putting this on. I, I know you don't have any selfish alcoholics in South Dakota. But in Canada, we have a lot of selfish alcoholics. And I know this would never happen to you, but it's very easy for me to come to an event such as this and, uh, and uh, enjoy the entire weekend and, and uh, have a nice dinner and listen to AA and Al-Anon talks all weekend and, and go home at the end of the weekend and sometimes forget all the hard work that's been done on our behalf because these things just don't happen. They just didn't turn a switch and this was here. There's been people getting together all year long to plan this thing. There's been people who are here early today setting up all those tables. There'll be people who will give up their entire weekend out at registration and hospitality suites. And there'll be people here after you and I've gone home still working on our behalf. And I want to thank those people from the bottom of my heart for your service. I have always been much more impressed by what I see you do rather than what I hear you say. <laughs> I've always had the ability to sound better than I really am, <laughs> including tonight. So I want to, uh, I want to thank you. And, uh, and what I'd like to do is to welcome those people, congratulate those people in their first year. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Steve, with your four days. I heard Wino Joe Leith when I was new. I heard him talk on a CD or wasn't even a CD, a, a tape. And he was talking at a convention and they'd done one of these countdowns. And he said that the only people in the room that that night that he envied were the people there in their first year. He says, because they're about to embark on a journey that's absolutely second to none. And at that early sobriety, I didn't quite understand what he was talking about, but I sure understand it today. So I want to welcome you folks here in your first year, welcome you to your first convention, and we please sure hope you keep coming back. And Roger, I would like to thank you, sir, for your 50-some-odd years, once we figure it out, 52 years, <laughs> for being here, for making this thing all possible for us. Thank you, sir, from the very bottom of my heart for that. I really and truly mean it. Uh, uh, I, I love coming to these things. You're really in. If you can just make it through this next hour, I got to look when we started. This next hour, you're about to be have some of the finest Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon that you can have. You really and truly are. You just make it through the hour, you'll be all right. <laughs> and it is nice for me. I am friends with all the people who are going to share this weekend, AA and Al-Anon. And it is so good to be here and be part of this with them, people I really, truly love and respect. And it is just a treat for me to be here uh, with them and to come here this weekend and make so I love coming to these things. I just love conferences. I'm a, a believer, a deep believer in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, a deep believer in our 12 steps and our 12 traditions. But I sometimes think today we're getting awfully mechanical and sometimes forget the power in fellowship. 
great power in fellowship. I have watched people come to these events and leave a different person. I've watched people come to these things and watch their lives change in a weekend. There is much more work to be done after, but there is great power in fellowship. And I love coming to these things. I love the energy in these things. I love the buzz. I come down from the room just out in the hallway. I love that energy. Don't you love going? I love it. My home group. I go my home group and I hopefully yours. You walk in, you know, that energy's in the room, that chatter, huh? all that buzz, just like being in a bar. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Everybody talking, nobody listening. <laughs> Alcoholics. Don't you love them? You ever tried having a conversation at a meeting? Ten times. I don't mean to interrupt. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you're selfish, self-centered. I love it. I love that buzz and that in here. And uh, so I am I am really, truly grateful to be here and uh, and be part of it. Uh, okay, my uh, my home group is a three legacy group, Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet on Monday and Thursday nights, Monday for a discussion meeting, Thursday night for an open speaker meeting. If you're ever just north of the city of Toronto, we'd love to have you here. I'm a group guy. I believe in the home group. I believe that the home group is the heartbeat of AA. I really, truly believe that. And I used to say I belong to the best group in the world. I don't say that any longer. I find it arrogant of me. But I belong to a strong group, Alcoholics Anonymous belong to a group where all three legacies are in place, where it's not just about personal recovery, but where unity is practiced and we operate under the umbrella of our 12 traditions, where service is there. It's just not the same one or two individuals constantly doing everything in the group, but together we work and function as a group. Together we work and function and go to detox centers and treatment centers. We have committees that make sure that the people from the detox and the treatment centers are at our meeting every Monday and Thursday night. I belong to a group that has structure. I belong to a group that starts on time and finishes on time. And we know who's going to chair those meetings and talk at those meetings. So we know that the people coming there that are new are going to hear a message of recovery. I belong to a stride. I belong to a group. I want to thank the guys who are at the door to welcome us as we come into this room tonight because I'm a guy that believes that's one of the most important things that we can do in Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the most important things that a home group can do is to have people at that door to sh- welcome and shake hands when those new people walk through there because an in-depth version of step four doesn't mean a damn thing to them. But a warm handshake and welcome, come and get a cup of coffee and sit here with us means a great, great deal. I belong to a group where there's enthusiasm. I believe that enthusiasm is contagious. I belong to a, a group where fellowship is, is, is thought out and planned. So those new people, when they come in here, young people come in here, that they have things to do and fellowship outside those meetings. And guys, I believe, I truly believe from the bottom of my heart that a guy or gal, when they walk into a meeting or a group of Alcoholics Anonymous where those things are in place, their chances of recovery become much greater than if they walk into a meeting where none of that's happening. So it is good to be here where there's strong Alcoholics Anonymous. You can always tell how the Alcoholics Anonymous is in the countdowns. I love watching those countdowns. I love to get to sit here when they're doing it because you don't have to turn your neck so much. But I love watching it. I love watching it. And and, and for Steve, uh, our conference in Toronto was last weekend. We had 3,300 people there. There was a guy there for his first meeting had to come up and get a big book. I thought, oh, man, I couldn't imagine that. Oh, couldn't imagine that. Huh? But, but so, so I love that stuff and, 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 and it's good to be here because you could see in the countdown the cross section of sobriety. A lot of long time members, middle members, new members. It's a sign that Alcoholics Anonymous is working. So it is good to be here and be a part of that. Thank you very much. When I say that I'm happy to be here, 
I really and truly am happy to be here because alcoholics don't always get where they're going. <laughs> Drinking alcoholics seldom get where they're going. But sometimes even sober alcoholics don't get where they're going. I'm going to share a very quick story with you about that. And first of all, let me tell you before that, there was a time in my life I was not allowed in the United States of America. Let me add, nor should I have been. They said, we have enough people like you here already. <laughs> we don't need to import them. But I applied to the United States to, uh, uh, Department of Justice for a waiver that would allow me to come into your great country. Uh, I have it. I have it right now. It's up in my room. Every time I come here, car, they want to have a discussion with me when I come in, and I have it there. Beautiful piece of paper, about that big. United States Department of Justice has my name on it. <laughs> Allows me to come into the USA on humanitarian grounds. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, <laughs> but I have it. And I don't know about you, but uh, I, from time to time, can misplace things. So when I got that waiver, I made 25 photocopies, just in case. <laughs> just in case. <clears throat> the other thing is when I come here and go to the uh, thing, they want to know where I'm going. They don't want to just know that I'm going to South Dakota, I'm going to Rapid City, South Dakota. They want to know precisely where I am. I don't know why, but they seem to want to know. So anyway, I'm going to an, uh, an AA thing in, in uh in uh, Illinois one at uh, one time I get up early I like to travel early I like to come here and be part I come here to be part of the conference I don't come here to talk I come here to listen I just shout in my mouth off for an hour so I like to get here so I'm going to this conference I get up early in the morning I'm looking for my waiver I said to my wife I said where's my waiver like it's her job to know where my waiver is she said I don't know butch it's wherever you've put it I said no it's not you've lost it <laughs> She said, take one of those photocopies and get going. You're going to miss your flight. So I get, I get my photocopy, I get all my gear. I head to Pearson International Airport. Please don't misunderstand what I'm going to say. Our homeland security, our border patrol do a wonderful job protecting our borders. God bless those men and women. But I think when they go to border patrol school, they teach them how not to smile. Ser serious people there. So anyway, I get there. I give the guy my stuff. I give him my waiver. He looks at me. He says, what are you, a criminal? I said, well, perhaps you might have said that at one time. He says to me, he says, this is a photocopy. I said, yes, sir, the original's at home for safekeeping. <laughs> Lies just fall out of my mouth. Just fall, just natural. Just comes like, I don't need to think, I need to think about truth. I don't need to think about lying, just rapid fire. It just comes out of my mouth. He says to me, he says, you can't travel on a photocopy. He said, you have your I-94 form. I pulled out a form. He says, that's the wrong form. I thought, this isn't shaping up well. He said, you go over there, fill out the proper form, and you got to go see somebody about this photocopy because you cannot travel on a photocopy. I thought, I'm not going to Illinois today. So anyway, I go over, I fill out the right forms, and I watch. I got one of those keen alcoholic minds. <laughs> that we only hear about from alcoholics. I promise you, you won't hear about the keen alcoholic mind at the Al-Anon meeting tomorrow. <laughs> right, Kathy? <laughs> so I go over there and I watch till his line's full and I see a more kind-looking man like my friend Doug. And I go to his line. I go there, I give the guy all the stuff. He says to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Illinois. He said, what's your purpose of business? I said, I'm going to talk at a conference, Alcoholics Anonymous. He says to me, what, what's, what address are you staying at? Oh, man, I forgot to get the address. I said to him, I said, uh, I, I, I don't know. He looked at me, he said, you don't know where you're going? 
I said, no, sir, I don't. I said, but it's okay because somebody's going to pick me up at the airport and take me there. He says to me, who's picking you up? I don't know. He said, let me get this straight. Somebody you don't know is picking you up, taking you somewhere you don't know where you're going. I said, yes, sir, that's right. He he says to me, what did you say your purpose of business was again? I said, I'm going to talk at a conference, Alcoholics Anonymous. He says to me, what are you going to talk about? And before I could answer him, he holds his hands up and says, hold it, let me guess. You don't know. (laughs) So I'm happy to be here tonight. (laughs) On September the 21st, 1989, two men came to my mother's house practicing Alcoholics Anonymous in its purest form. Now that should tell you something right there, my mother's house. Somewhere every 33-year-old self-respecting alcoholic should be is with mummy. Two men came to my mother's house practicing alcoholics anonymous in purest form. They left their homes, came to my mother's house, and talked to me about their drinking. They did not talk to me about my drinking. They did not tell me I shouldn't drink, I shouldn't drug, I should go to treatment. They didn't tell me nothing. Those two men came to my mother's house, talked to me about their drinking, and told me what had happened in their lives since they came to something called Alcoholics Anonymous. Would I like to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with them? I was a hopeless, helpless, chronic alcoholic. I had been running the street since I was 13 years old. And those two men came to my mother's house that night, took me to my first meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have been with you ever since that night. I don't know how to explain that to you. Other than to tell you I'm grateful, very, very grateful for that experience because I know that's not everybody's experience. A lot of people come to Alcoholics Anonymous uh, and, and return to drinking and come back to AA. Some people come to Alcoholics Anonymous many times return to drinking and come back to AA. Some people come to Alcoholics Anonymous return to drinking and never come back to AA. But that was my experience and I'm grateful for it. The other thing that I'm very grateful for is I've loved coming here almost from that first night. There was something in that room that night. I didn't know what it was then. I know what it is today that attracted me, though. And I loved coming almost from day one. I've loved going to meetings. I love coming to conventions, service days, assemblies. I just love I love listening to the story of an alcoholic and the seedier, the better. (laughs) So I have no regrets since the day I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I really don't. Other than one. I do have one regret, Roger. That is that I didn't get to drink with some of you people. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever thought that or not, but I've got some people in here I'd like to drink with. huh? We're a cast of characters in this outfit, aren't we? You couldn't make some of this stuff up that goes on around here. You couldn't make it up. I'll tell you, I went to a thing a number of years ago up in Sault Ste. Marie. It's up in, way up in northern Ontario on the American-Canadian border. I went there, a little roundup there. I was going to talk Saturday night. I get up Saturday morning. I went out to have some breakfast. I picked up the local paper. I like to read about the community I've been invited to come to. Only seems fitting. I'm in the restaurant. I'm reading in the paper. This is a true story. Well, I hope my whole story's true, but (laughs) this part is for sure. There was an article on the front page of the paper. There was a man, they had arrested him coming across the American-Canadian border, drunk on a stolen street sweeper. (laughs) 
And my first thought was, I'd like to drink with him. Huh? <laughs> we better get drinking. I, uh, I was 25 years old, and my wife had thrown me out of our home, and I want to tell you that I loved her as much as I was capable of loving. It's important that I say that to you as much as I was capable of loving at that time. I had a new address every night. I lived in the stairwells of apartment buildings in downtown Toronto. I just went from building to building. I had a new address each night. And at nighttime, I was under that stairwell. In the daytime, I was like a rat in a sewer out on those streets looking to score, looking to scam, looking to rip somebody off to get the money I need to get to do what I need to do. I hear people in AA talk about AA luggage, matching green garbage bags. Huh? I didn't have any AA luggage. <laughs> had the clothes on my back. Still had an ultra suede jacket, though. <laughs> Going to be cool at any expense, right? I'm 25 years old. I'm living in stairwells. I got the clothes on my back, and nobody, nobody wants anything more to do with me. And let me add right now, nor should they. Because alcoholics of my type are takers. I'm a user and a taker. I use and take from everybody I come in contact with. Now, it doesn't always appear that way because I want everyone to like me. I'm the guy in the bar passing that, buying the drinks for everybody, passing the bag of powder around. Everybody's friend, good old Butch. The only reason Butch ever did anything for anyone was so you'd like me. Not because I cared about you. I couldn't care less if you lived or died. Made no difference to me. I'm a taker. And you want to know who I take from most? The people who love me the people who care about me because they love me so much they can't stop trying one more time this time it's going to work and they keep giving and giving and I keep taking and taking till eventually I break their hearts till eventually they can't take it any longer and they got to push me away and that's where I am I'm 25 years old I'm in the east end of Toronto I'm all jacked up one night nowhere to go as I said my wife and I owned a home in the beaches we had a screened-in down near the lakefront. We had a screened-in porch and a couple wicker couches. I thought, I'm going to slip in there and get a couple hours and get out before she wakes up. Well, I pass out, and I wake up to one of these. And I opened my eyes and looked, and there was that little gal I love. And she looked at me with disgust and pity. And she said, Butch, you're a useless piece of scum, and you'll never change. And if you cared anything about me at all, you'd get up and get out of here, and please don't ever come back because I can't stomach to look at you. And I get up and I left there and it was July or August, I don't know, it was a hot, hot summer day and I'm hungover and I'm sick and I'm heartsick. And I walk down on the boardwalk, down on the lakefront and I'm sitting down there in that condition on a park bench and over where you guys are sitting there was another park bench and there was a little boy, five or six years old, sitting there eating a popsicle. And I looked over at that little boy and you know what I thought to myself? Wish I had a dime for a popsicle. The big shot. The dope dealer, everybody's friend, good old Butch, sitting on a park bench wishing he had a dime for a popsicle. Nobody wanting anything more to do with me. And guys, here was the thought that I had at that moment as clear as I'm thinking right now. I knew that that park bench and places like it was where I was going back to every time. I've always been a talker and a hustler. I knew I'd put a deal together. I'd come up with some cash. I always did. But I knew at that moment that that park bench and places just like it was where I was going to go back to. And I knew it beyond a shadow of a doubt. I was 25 years old. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 33. I had eight more years on those streets. And I will not bore you tonight with a horror story. You see, if you're an alcoholic of my type, you already know it never gets better. It always gets worse. And I had eight more years on those streets. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 33 and I joined a group. And I got a sponsor. And I did the things you guys told me to do. Forget this suggested crap. 
the stuff you told me to do. You know where I was a number of years ago, huh? Rome, Italy. Oh, Rome, Italy. Standing in the Sistine Chapel, looking at the paintings of Michelangelo from hundreds of years before my wife standing beside me, and the tears started to roll down my face. And I thought of that guy sitting on the park bench wishing he had a dime for a popsicle. It's a long way from that park bench to the Sistine Chapel in Rome. It is a long way from the folks we'll listen to here this weekend to where they were to where they are today. It is a long way from where you and I came from. Many of us here tonight, the dredges of society. Many of us here tonight, our own families didn't even want us around any longer. Yet here we sit this weekend, members of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, living good, rich, full, productive lives. How do we get from where we were to where we sit this weekend? How does that happen for you and I? Because it's not supposed to. But you know how it happens, don't you? And it only happens one way, and that is through the grace of God. Through a loving God that you introduced me to through the 12 Steps Alcoholics Anonymous and a fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous, I will be incredibly grateful for you till the day I die, till the day I die. I, uh, I, uh, I started to drink at an early age. Uh, I hear people talk about dysfunctional families. Was my family dysfunctional? I have no idea. Let me just tell you, it wasn't the Cleaver residence in my home. There was lots of parties in my home, lots of drinking in my home. Always on the weekend, there was a party. As a little boy, they let me play bartender. I could take them beers and take away the empties. They'd let me have swigs, and they'd say, isn't he cute? And I loved that attention. So I started to drink when I was four years old. Now, I wasn't a daily drinker when I was four. No, my allowance wouldn't allow it. I actively sought out alcohol. I was 12 or 13 years old. I got a guy to go into a liquor store, get us a couple bottles of wine. I was going to be a wine connoisseur, two bottles of old sailor. I think that's comparable to what you call Thunderbird in your country. And let me tell you, any wine I drank had a cap, not a cork. We drank that wine, got drunk, puked, and passed out, and that was the end of my social drinking, all downhill from there. I hear people, I don't know if you have this uh, in South Dakota or not, but I hear people in AA meetings, these uh, discussion meetings, uh, say things like they came to Alcoholics Anonymous hoping Alcoholics Anonymous was going to help them become a social drinker. You ever hear that? Came to Alcoholics Anonymous hoping Alcoholics Anonymous was going to help them become a social drinker. Let me tell you tonight, I didn't want to be a social drinker when I drank. I don't want to be a social drinker tonight. I don't particularly like social drinkers. I find them weird. Weird. You ever watch a social drinker drink? They let the ice melt in their glass. Sick drinking. Alcohol abuse. You ever drink with a social drinker? That's enough to make you puke, isn't it? You're having a few scoots. Would you like another one? Oh, no, thanks. I'm starting to feel it. Oh, really? I thought that's when you put it in overdrive. Social drinker. My wife's a social drinker. My beautiful, my wife's praying for me right now. But my wife's a social drinker, Doug. This is, this is that recently at our home. We have an open concept, uh, uh, home at our home. And I'm in the living room a while ago and I look over in the kitchen and Dee's in there and she's got a bottle of wine on, on the kitchen counter. And there's a funnel in it. I thought, what's that funnel for? So I watched. And then she takes her glass of wine and starts pouring it in the funnel. I said to her, what are you doing? She says to me, 
I put too much in the glass. I said, don't you ever do that again. I'll divorce you. Social drinker. I'm a barroom drinker. I don't identify with closet alcoholics. Doesn't mean they're not alcoholic. Just drank different. You know, you've heard them. Get the bottle, go in, lock the door, put on the country western music. I don't identify. I'm a bar. I love bars. I like opening the door to a bar. The smoke would billow out, the tinkle of glass, the smell of stale urine. I love it. I love it. I like neon. I like neon. I like neon when I was drinking. I still like neon. That's why I stay out of those casinos. They're not good for guys like me. And I got to tell you, I thank God I never tried to get sober in the United States of America. I don't know if I'd have made it. God, I love to drink in your country. I love it. You got many more than we got at home. I call them juke joints. I call them juke. Those divey little scuzzy rat hole bars. You know, you got some here. I saw them. I saw them. Oh, they're beautiful. I like driving by them. Huh? Beautiful. I'll tell you, I was going to an AA thing in, in uh, Pennsylvania a number of years ago. I decided to drive there. I'm driving through this little town in the middle of nowhere. My wife's with me, and I'm going down to Main Street, and I hammer on the brakes to my car. I'm backing my car up, and my wife said, Butch, what are you doing? I said, i got to see this again. And guys, I'm telling you, there it was. This divey, scuzzy little rat hole bar had a neon sign. Said, stop for one, stay till one. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> if I'd have been drinking, I'd have had that tattooed on me. So work hard. <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to talk any more about my drinking night other than to quickly share with you what drinking does for an alcoholic of my type. It is important that we talk about our drinking in Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to give those new folks a little bit of heads up. You're going to hear some people get up to these podiums and say things like, I don't like drunkologues. When you hear that, buckle up. <laughs> You're about to listen to 50 minutes of drinking. It is important that we talk about our drinking for the purpose of identification. That is the greatest tool that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what makes Alcoholics Anonymous work. One alcoholic identifying with another alcoholic. That's why Alcoholics Anonymous work for alcoholics. Other programs work for other problems. We have to have identification. But I've come to believe in Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't matter if I'm drinking Dom Perignon or Aqua Shave. Doesn't matter if I'm drinking in the Fairmont Hotel or under a bridge in a box. It's what drinking does for me that's important. And that's what I quickly want to share with you, particularly if you're new here tonight. And the things that I'm going to share with you, I did not know this when it was happening. I saw it in inventory. I saw it as you took me back through my life and helped me see my life honestly for the very first time ever. But as I look back today, I remember being a young boy in school. 10 years old, 11 years old, and I'd be in that classroom and the teacher would ask a question and she'd start looking around the room to see who she was going to ask to answer that question. And my head would go down like this. Oh, Jesus, don't let her ask me. Because I knew if she made eye contact with me, she's asking me to answer the question and I don't want to answer the question. doesn't even matter if I know the answer to the question. I don't want to answer the question. When I went to school, we used to have to do book report. Get up in front of the whole classroom full of kids. No good. No good. I get up in the morning, I'd say, Ma, I've been puking all night. I'm sick. I can't go to school today. Please don't make me go. Because I want to tell you that I would be terrified, terrified at the thought of getting up in front of that classroom full of kids. Every decision I ever made in my life was based on fear. Most of it unfounded and ungrounded, but fear. Where I go, what I do. I don't know about any of you, but I every now and then would get goofy. 
I go on about a five-day run. I come home on a Sunday after being gone for five days. My wife would be there waiting. I come in that door. I'd say, sweetheart, that's it. N -n no more. No, 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 no more. I know I said it last week, but this time I swear my ma's life, I'm never, never, never having another drink of whiskey as long as I live. That's Sunday. I'd wake up Monday. I'd think to myself, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. I'd have to go to a wedding that following Saturday. You ever go to a wedding sober? That's a bad deal. That is a bad, bad deal. I would be at that church sweating, thinking about that reception that's going to start in three hours. I'm back at that reception. I don't have anything in me, and my hands are sweaty. I got a knot in the pit of my gut. I feel awkward and out of place, and it's just horrible. And I have to do one of two things. I got to get over to that bar and get a couple drinks into me, or I got to get out of there because I can't stand the way I feel. Every decision I make, where I go, what I do, who I hang out with is all based on a comfort level. You want to know what kills an alcoholic like me? I don't even know I'm afraid. I think I'm afraid of nothing and I'm afraid of everything and I don't even know it. We talk an awful lot in these uh, topic meetings. Let's discuss resentments tonight. I prefer to call it hate. Now, I know you're not that sick in South Dakota, but I'm trying to hate I'm the type of alcoholic that I'd be out driving to my car. I'm on the nod by now. I'd be at that light and the light would turn green and the guy behind me lays on his horn. Whoa. I almost go through the roof of my car. I want to get out of my car, go back there, open the door, drag him out by his throat, take a crowbar and crack his skull open. I know some of you spiritual giants don't think thoughts like that. I'm sure, but I do. I'm not talking anger management here. <laughs> I'm talking rage. I'm talking a white rage that I don't have 10 minutes before and I don't have 10 minutes after. But I have an anger inside of me that comes out every now and then and I can't control it. And I say things to people or do things to people I never wanted to say or do. Do you want to know who takes the brunt of my anger? Behind closed doors. The people who love me. Because see, I'm out there constantly seeking your approval. So I don't display that there. I keep it for the people whose approval I think I already have. Lonely. I'm standing at a subway platform in downtown Toronto on a Friday night all jacked up and a train pulled up and the doors opened and a young couple my age got off that train holding hands and walked off into the night laughing and smiling. And I looked at that couple and God, I felt sad. I thought, why can't I be like those people? Why's all the trouble got to keep happening? I remember walking through a residential area on a warm summer's night. You get that nice August night. It's just getting dark and there's a warm breeze. And I'd walk down a street and I'd see the nice homes. And I'd see the television on inside and the families in there. And I feel like crying. Why can't I just have a nice home and a family like other people? Why's all the trouble got to keep happening time and time again? From as long as I can ever remember, I was restless, irritable, and discontented. If I was at this bar, I'd say, guys, drink up, let's go down to that bar. If we're at this party, I'd say, guys, drink up, let's go over to the other party. If I married to you, I should be married to her. Never quite right. And I don't know about you guys, but I'll tell you, one of those double vodkas or whatever I was doing that day was like this. I don't know if you remember or not. I'll give you one more. Jesus, oh, I did that one night. Two guys got up and left. They remembered the feeling. You should see when I do that at detox around the ceiling. Anyway, <laughs> beautiful. I have three or four of those double vodkas and I walk into that wedding like I own the joint, and I am moving and grooving. 
And I'm talking to the ladies, and I'm sitting with my buddies, and we're drinking and snorting and carrying on. And at that moment, everything in my life is absolutely perfect. And my perception of reality changes. Huh? Same wedding, same hall, same people, same music, same food, same everything. But you put four vodkas in me, and that whole place changes. And I get an immediate sense of ease and comfort. And that is why I drink whiskey, because I like the effects it produces. But I am an alcoholic. Something happens to me that only happens to one out of every ten people that drink it called a phenomenon of craving. And I'd start drinking, and I couldn't, I, I wouldn't stop. I'd end up drinking 60 ounces of vodka, and I'd smash up my car. I go out after work for a loaf of bread. I run into Doug. I've gone for three months. My, I'm getting fired from my job. I'm, I, I'm out. My, I'm at home. My wife's leaving. I'm out drinking, partying, carrying on. I don't want to stop. I got no money, so I'm stealing yours. <laughs> and now I go to jail. And what everybody focused on in my life was the crash cars, the broken marriages, lost jobs, going to jails. We looked at drinking. We never looked at alcoholism. And people told me from the time I was 18 years old, Butch, if you just quit drinking whiskey and sticking needles in your arms, you'd be all right. And there was times I wasn't drinking whiskey or sticking needles in my arms. And guess what? I wasn't all right. As a matter of fact, I'm crazier sober than I ever was when I drank. But all those well-meaning people could see was that when I drank, the trouble that followed. So naturally, they said, stop drinking. You'll be okay. But those well-meaning people didn't understand how I feel when I'm sober. How could they know? I didn't know. I'd love to stand up here tonight and tell you, woke up one morning, HFC Finance was dying to lend me money. Work was thinking of promoting me, and my wife was sending me flowers. And I thought, I think I'll join AA today. Huh? (laughs) Every now and then I hear some moron from the front of one of these rooms say things like, if you're not here for the right reasons, you might as well drink. And every now and then, I'd like to get the tire iron back out. (laughs) The right reasons? Did you come to Alcoholics Anonymous for the right reasons? I come to Alcoholics Anonymous because I had nowhere else to go. One more time, my back was against the wall. My boss called me into work on a Tuesday. He said, but you're a hard worker. I said, well, thank you. He said, but you're not here much. (laughs) Picky, picky. He said, do you think you might have a problem with alcohol? I said, no, but I know what the problem is. He said, maybe you'd share that with me. I said, it's my health. He said, really? I said, yes. Now, granted, my poor health may have something to do with my drinking. I'm going to quit drinking. My health's going to get better. Everyone's going to be okay. He said, do you think you might need some help quitting drinking? I said, no, I'm just going to quit. Got up and left his office. Was to find out later his wife had been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for many years. Can you imagine the chuckle he had as I left? Huh? Uh, Oh, he's just going to quit. That was Tuesday. I woke up Thursday in another hotel room in another town drunk. I didn't keep him waiting long. And for whatever the morning, that morning, I knew the jig was up. I'd used all the lies. Alcoholics are liars. I don't know what that's about, but I'll lie when the truth will serve me better. Pathological liar. I'm the type of alcoholic that goes out and plays golf all by himself and cheats on the scorecard. I do. That's not the best part. At the end, I look at the card and go, good game. Which good game? so I'd used all the lies I know I gotta come up with something good this time I had a few tequilas I turned my mind to it I thought I know what I'll tell them I'm alcoholic and I'm gonna go to AA and that's how I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and for anybody here in the room tonight who's new we couldn't care less why you're here we're just glad to see you we're just glad to see you and maybe 
just maybe by the grace of God, something someone will say, something you'll read, something you'll hear, and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous can happen in your life, and you can go on to live a happy and useful life like so many men and women have been able to do. You just keep coming. Just keep coming. And as I said in the beginning, I've been an absolutely blessed man since the day I come to AA. Deep, deep love in my heart for the old timers. Deep love. Men and women who've been coming for 20 and 30 and 40 and 52 years. Who've made sacrifices and commitments to Alcoholics Anonymous so it'd be here for a guy like Steve and I. I love him from the very bottom of my heart. And if you are new to Alcoholics Anonymous, I would urge you, to get close to these men and women and learn from their experience because we're not going to have them with us forever. And I had some giants come into my life. I've heard people in Alcoholics Anonymous say you should never put people on pedestals. Well, you do what you need to do. But let me tell you something. I have some people on pedestals in our programs. Giants. Never, some right here in the room tonight. Never have I lost sight of their humanities. You want to know what the greatest gift my sponsor ever gave me? The greatest thing the old man ever did. It wasn't some profound thing he pulled out of the book, some spiritual wisdom he laid on me. The greatest gift my sponsor ever gave me was he allowed me to see his warts. He allowed me to see him get afraid. He allowed me to see him get angry. He allowed me to see him get selfish. He allowed me to see him get lustful. He allowed me to see all of him. Because if he hadn't, and you don't continue to, I will never measure up. We are much more brothers and sisters in our defects than we are in our virtues, aren't we? (laughs) And I had some wonderful people come into my life, none more than my own sponsor, Bobby Dobson. I've heard people in Alcoholics Anonymous say, if you like your sponsor, you have the wrong sponsor. (laughs) I hear that and I know I'm listening to an idiot. I didn't like my sponsor. I loved my sponsor, and I love my sponsor today. You see, you were the very first people who helped me understand what my problem was. I don't know about any of you. If Maybe you knew what your problem was when you got to Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'll assure you I had no idea. Now, I would told what my problem was. <laughs> A lot of My wife told me what my problem was. My parents told me. Judges told me. Psychiatrists told me. I'd heard for years and years, Butch, just quit drinking. You were the first people that said, kid, drinking's not your problem. It's your solution. How I feel when I'm sober is my problem. I am restless, irritable, and discontent sober. And I have to drink again. You see, I don't have a choice whether I drink or not. I have lost the power and choice. That's what makes me alcoholic. That is the difference between me and the hard drinker. I have lost the power and choice. You see, an alcoholic of my type, not drinking and not treating alcoholism, and sitting in AA meetings does not treat alcoholism. That's a great myth that kills many alcoholics. The meetings are where the solution is. The meetings are where the fellowship is. The 12 steps Alcoholics Anonymous treat alcoholism. And an alcoholic of my type not treating alcoholism and sitting and, and not drinking will get so restless, irritable, and discontent sober that I have to do one of two things. I don't have a choice. I have to do one or the other. Either drink again or blow my brains out. Most of us drink again. But we all know someone who's paid the supreme price, don't we? Didn't have a clue. Didn't have a clue. You told me selfishness and self-centeredness was the root of my troubles. I didn't do an inventory and go, my, 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 you haven't been a very nice boy. (laughs) 
It was not, I didn't need to inventory to know I was a lying, cheat, and thief. But I had no idea of the depth of my self-centeredness. I had no idea of how self manifests in my life and what it really and truly looks like. Didn't have a clue. You helped me see that in inventory. You told me that selfish, the root of my troubles and from my self-centeredness and selfishness comes a hundred forms of fear and all my resentments, but all based in self. And you told me that I had to be rid of this or it would kill me. And there seems no way of doing it without God's help. And that was the purpose of our process. That was the purpose of our steps. For allow me to find a power greater than myself that would solve our problem, my problem. I thank God for strong sponsorship. I thank God somebody just didn't give me a book and say, here, go do this. Can we kill him? You see, we kill him. I thank God. I, I thank God I didn't hear that quick lip crap. Oh, just go to meetings and don't drink and you're going to be okay. Isn't that a nice little out for me now that my life's better so that I could sit at home on Friday night and watch my flat screen TV? No, no, the people came in my life said, kid, you have a lot more wrong with you drinking. You come with us and we're going to show you what you're wrong with you. And more importantly, we're going to show you what you have to do to get well. I thank God for that direction. And you started to take me through this process and you took me through that. Because you see, I can't differentiate the truth from the false, drunk or sober. I need your guidance through this process. I need somebody in front of me who has done this process to take me through it. And I thank God for that sponsorship. And I thank God for you doing that for me. And you took me through. We're not going to talk about that tonight. We're running out of time. But you took me through and you took me through the amends process. Incredibly freeing process. That amends process for a guy like me. For a guy like me. Had absolutely no idea. No idea. You see, I don't know about any of you, but I'm going to tell you for my entire life. My entire life. You know, they had the kids in school that did good belonged to the clubs and the teams and stuff. I hated their guts. I hated those kids. Hated them. I didn't know why then. I know why today. I didn't feel as good as those kids was the truth. Then they had the kids behind the school were cutting up, starting to smoke, starting to drink and stuff. That's where I hung out because I felt a little sharper than most of those. <laughs> but my entire life, my entire life, I know this wasn't you, but my entire life, every person I've ever met, all my life, and for a long time in Alcoholics Anonymous, and still today, if I'm not in fit spiritual condition, the first thing I do when I meet you is I size myself up to you. And I am always, always better than or less than, but never the same as. Never. And that amends process freed me and got me right with the world. And today I can be just one of many, just one of God's kids, just like you. No better than, no less than. Just a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. That is a freeing process for a guy who was wrapped up in self so tight he couldn't move his entire life. Don't miss out on that. Don't miss out on that. So many people stop there. So many people stop. And, and you know, sometimes a lot. I've listened to people debate in a meeting for 45 minutes whether they were recovered or recovering. Jesus, Murphy, smoke starts coming out my ears. Our book is very clear on that. I don't know what the discussion is, but I thank God you showed me in the book where it says it is easy to let up in a spiritual program action and to rest on our laurels. And if I do, I'm headed for trouble because we are not cured of alcoholism, not cured. What I have is a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of my spiritual condition. 
I want to share a couple quick things for you. I know this never happens to you, but sometimes the longer I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, sometimes the longer I'm here, the harder it is for me to be truthful with you. Sometimes the longer I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, the harder it is for me to come to you and tell you I'm dying inside and I don't know what to do. Because I've been sober for a long time and I'm an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I want you to think I have it all together. I know you'd never do this here in South Dakota, but sometimes the longer I'm sober, the easier it is for me to become judgmental and critical. I know you don't have to worry about that. Look what they're doing over there. Look what's going on at that group. Huh? Easy to let up in the spiritual program of action. I stay in fit spiritual condition by the actions that I take today. I cannot stay spiritually fit because I used to be a GSR. I cannot stay sober because I used to be an intergroup rep. I cannot stay sober because I used to go to the detox. I cannot stay sober because I used to make coffee at my home group. I stay spiritually fit by the actions that I take today. And it is easy for that drifting process to start. I watch it time and time again. I am more in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous than I have ever been. Because let me tell you something, I have a lot more to lose today than 25 years ago when I came to you fine people. I stay right here doing what I got to do. And one of the greatest gifts you ever gave me, you introduced me to a loving, powerful God. huh? Chuck Chamberlain used to say that we have one problem and only one problem. That's it. And from that one problem comes all other problems. huh? A conscious separation from God. If you'd have said to me when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, do you believe in God? I would have said to you, yes, I do. It had as much meaning or purpose in my life as the price of coffee beans in Brazil tonight. But I wasn't a disbeliever. And God was way up there in heaven. And he had long hair and a beard and a big stick. Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston. <laughs> and if you were good, good things happened. And if you were bad, bad things happened. Huh? Well, if God's way up there and I'm down here, have you ever heard more of a conscious separation in your life? You were the first people that said to me, kid, deep down inside of every man, woman, and child is a fundamental idea of God. And that the great reality for us is that our creator has entered our hearts and lives in a way that is indeed miraculous. And in the final analysis, it is only there that he may be found. And you introduced me to that. You introduced me to that through listening to your stories. That's why we tell our stories in our own language and from our own point of view, how we we're able to form a relationship with this power. You introduced me. I listened to your stories. I watched what you done. And very slowly, things started to shift for me. Things started to shift for me. You know, we talk a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous about Bill's bright light experience. We very often will hear that if we're talking about spiritual awakenings, spiritual experience. But I didn't have that bright light that Bill had. huh? I don't know this for sure or not. But I know Bill was an alcoholic. And I just wonder sometimes the more he told the story, the brighter that light got. <laughs> it was if the room lit up. It felt as though a warm breeze. I don't know that, you know, we all, if we stay and take this action, many of you in the room, most of you in the room probably know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, please, dear God, just stay here. But you know that time? You know that time when you're driving down the highway and you stick a little Leonard Skinner in? Listen to a little free bird. And you're driving down that road and your eyes start to fill up with tears. Start to roll down your face. And you know. 
you know. And we go from believing to knowing. We go, we go from believing to experiencing this power. None of us can fully define or comprehend, but we feel it. And I think that that's when this power starts to become a real working force in my life. Not something that I go and do on Mondays and Thursday nights, but something that I live. That this thing now shifts from self-examination to now outward. Where this thing really starts to become a way of life, a design for living. And we start to move and change. And we start to grow in understanding and effectiveness. And our real purpose is to be a maximum service to God knows about us. That's what this process has been doing. Huh? That's what this process, nothing, the great paradox, uh, if we want to keep it, we got to give it away. Nothing, nothing ensures us immunity from drinking, like intensive work with other alcoholics. When all else fails, this works. The occasional good deed is not enough. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depends upon our constant thought of others. Unless I continue to enlarge and perfect in my spiritual life through unselfish acts and helping others, I will surely drink when we hit those certain low spots. If you're here tonight and you've been sober two or three or five years and you happen to get here and stay and things are going wonderful in your life and everything's been good, buckle up. Buckle up. Those low spots will come. Life will happen. And when it does, I better have a power that is real. That is real. Incredible gift. And that's what I've been doing. That's what I've been doing. We've been richly blessed, haven't we? We're going to listen to it all weekend long. I know all the t speakers' stories, the transformation. We've been given so much, haven't we? We could go anywhere in AA, anywhere in the world tonight, to all the conference going on, and ask those people, how your life since coming to Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon? You know the, the answer. You know what we hear. It's the greatest thing ever. It's the best thing ever. If we hadn't been given enough already, you and I are then given the ability to change people's lives. That's not an ego statement. That is a statement of gratitude. That is a statement of humility. You and I, when armed with facts about ourselves, that's what this process has been doing. It's been arming us with facts about ourselves and have this solution or able to make the difference in a few short hours when nobody else was able to. And until such an understanding happens, little or nothing can be done for the alcoholic. You and I are uniquely gifted, uniquely gifted to help somebody dying from this illness. What an incredible gift. What an incredible gift. It says in our book that we laugh at sometimes seemingly tragic situations. <laughs> I don't know if you do this here or not, but at home, when we celebrate our AA, our one year and your five years and your 10 years, you get to pick the speaker and the, maybe the players in the meeting and stuff. And, and maybe some family come and maybe some people from work. Never been to AA before. Don't know anything about AA. Some monkey like me gets up the front of this room and says things like, yes, I bought a brand new Cadillac. I picked it up at nine o'clock in the morning and totaled it at 10. <laughs> we all laugh, laugh. Huh? I've been in 18 treatment centers. I've had 27 shock treatments. I'm still twitching. We laugh, laugh, laugh. I got a buddy of mine that talks about spilling a bottle of whiskey in his bed and then sucking it out of the sheets. <laughs> Great fun. <laughs> Says we laugh at sometimes seemingly tragic situations. You know what it says after that? Of course you do. Why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we? 
because we have recovered. We've recovered and been given the power to help others. God's power, not our power. What an incredible gift. My life before coming to Alcoholics Anonymous had absolutely no meaning or no purpose whatsoever, none. I don't know what your life was like. It's none of my business. But mine, I was either drunk, planning on getting drunk, recovering from being drunk, in trouble, trying to get out of trouble, planning on more trouble. I work all week so I can drink all weekend. I deal so I can do. That's my life. And all the people in my life are the same. Alkies don't hang out with social drinkers. No meaning, no purpose. Huh? I go to a detox at home, not because I'm some saint, some wonderful human being. I do it. It's the way I was taught. I am the product of strong sponsorship, and I believe in strong sponsorship. And I believe that without strong sponsorship, our chances of recovery are almost nil. I truly believe that. Anyway, I go there, and uh, I go uh, Mondays. I do a thing there every Monday for 20-some-odd years now. I go Sundays if I'm in town. And I, and because we have a big speaker meeting, a couple hundred people every Sunday morning. I like to take new people to speaker meetings so they can listen. I happen to think it's good for new people to listen. I know it's not that fashionable today, but I happen to think it's good. Anyway, I go there one day. There's a guy in there and he's in bad shape. I'm not talking hungover, detoxing. I'm talking physically. I thought this guy might die. He might not make it. Well, I figured to myself, he could die at the meeting as easy as he can die here. Diane's dying. You got to do it somewhere. So let's go. I took him to the meeting. After me, and we spent a couple hours together talking about this design for living that we have, this practical program action. I left him. I never saw him again. I'm sitting in a meeting one day. I see some guy coming across the room. I could see he's headed for me. Clean cut looking guy. Had a pair of slacks on. A shirt come walking up. He said, but you probably don't remember me. I said, I'm sorry. I can't say that I do, but I meet a lot of people. He says, my name's Ziggy. I said, holy smokes. That's not really what I said, but that's what I'm saying here. (laughs) He says, you remember me? I said, oh, I remember you. It's the guy. And he's looking good. He said, Butch, I just wanted to thank you for taking me to that meeting. He said, I haven't had a drink since that morning. It's almost been a year. I said, congratulations. He said, I was wondering if I could ask a favor of you. I said, if I could do it, I will. He said, will you come and talk at my one-year AA birthday? I said, I'd be honored to do that, Ziggy. I went and talked at a group a handful of years ago. I get up the front of that room. I couldn't, I started to cry. I couldn't get going. And I'll tell you why. I looked out and there sitting at the table in a suit and tie, looking like a million bucks with his wife and all his children was Ziggy. And he was getting his 15 year medallion. Took him to his first meeting, talked at his one year, talked at his five year, talked at his 10 year, talked at his 15 year. You know where I was last year? Ziggy's 20. You think my life doesn't have meaning? You think my life doesn't have purpose? My life is so rich, so full. I could stand up here for the next two hours. I'd be all alone, but I could do it. (laughs) Talking to you about things that have happened in my life since I came to this program and did the one thing that we have to do. The one thing that we have to do. Don't you love when we read How It Works at every meeting? Greatest piece of literature ever written for a guy like me anyway. Don't you love at the end of the steps where it goes, oh, whoa. What an order. I can't go through with it. Huh? Don't you love what it says after that? Don't worry. Don't worry. None of us can. I can't. Carla can't. Bill couldn't. Bob could. As a matter of fact, none of us, none of us is able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. The point is we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. We practice. But that first step, that first step, that's the one we do 100%. That we admit to our innermost selves 
that we are alcoholic. Our innermost selves. I can go to any treatment center, any detox center, anywhere in the world tonight and say to those guys and gals, you powerless over alcohol or drugs? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I am. They all know it here. I need to know it here. I need to believe in the depth of my soul that my life, my life depends on taking these actions and being with you people. Because if I don't, I won't do what I need to do to stay here. I'll tell you what I believe that first step is about and the secret to being sober is surrender. Surrender. I'm done. I'm finished. No more tough guy. No more big shot. No more know-it-all. I'm done. I don't want to live this way no more. I want to live the way you're living. Will you please help me? Will you please help me? And I become willing to do whatever it is you tell me I have to do. I don't need to like it. I don't need to agree with it. I don't need to think it's good for me. I just need to do it. And when I do that, I'm on the road home. Everything in my life that's good. I think we start at quarter two. And Billy will tell me. Uh, I'm going to tell you one and a half stories and get out of here. <laughs> everything in my life, everything in my life that's good, anything I am or ever hope to be is because of you. Huh? If I lived to be a thousand years old, I could never pay you back. And you want to know the thing about it? You've never asked me to. You've never asked me for a single solitary thing since the day I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. You've merely suggested to me, although at times strongly, but I try to give a little bit back of what's so freely been given to me. Take a new guy to a couple of meetings, show him a little love and understanding, maybe give him or her a hug and tell him they're going to be okay. I don't know how you feel about that, but it seems like a terribly small price for what's been given to me. I, I love watching the golf on TV, and I love watching on Sundays. And you know when the, the final pairing, the guy's in the lead, and he's coming up, and he's won, and all the excitement. Well, I'm watching it one time, and it was the Masters. And Phil Mickelson was leading, and he was the last pairing. And he's coming up that 18th thing. He's got a three- or four-shot lead. He's won the Masters. And his wife was going through cancer treatment, breast cancer. And as Phil's walking up that 18th fairway, the camera's on him, and you could see his eyes were filling up with tears. It took everything he had to hold it together coming up that thing. And they flashed the camera to his wife, Amy, beautiful girl, and their two little girls. And you could see the tears in her face. And I'm crying. And I'm watching this, and I turned to Dee. I said, Dee, I said, can you imagine how proud she must be of him? My wife turned and looked at me and said, I know exactly how she feels. I feel that every time I see you stand at one of those rooms. But she said, that's gall. That's a game, a wonderful game. But we get to be part of people's lives. Everything that's good. I'm going to share the half story now and get out of here. And I hope you understand the... I share this story because I know that there's somebody in this room tonight who's hurting some way. It says in our in the 12 and 12 that uh, that uh, self-examination, prayer and meditation, when taken individually, produce a good thing. But when logically interwoven, form an unshakable foundation for life, an unshakable foundation for life. Wow. Our granddaughter, when she was five years old, was diagnosed with leukemia. She spent five months in children's hospital and went into remission and she come home. And, and she was home for five or six months and the cancer came back. And she had to go back in there and they said that uh, she had to have the strongest radiation, the strongest chemo and a bone marrow transplant. She had 30% chance to live. When I saw Kathy last time, that's where she was. 
Well, they did all that. And she had the stem cell transplant. It was more successful than the doctors ever could have hoped for. And she come home and she was, she was good. And, and, and in June of this year, our, the cancer came back and they said, there's no, there's no more treatment. We can't do anything more. And on November 2nd, we buried our seven year old granddaughter, Sarah. And it was a horrible deal. It is a horrible deal. And what had happened is, is our son-in-law is a high school teacher. And when that happened in that, he started this blood donor drive and bone marrow drive. And all the kids in the school got onto it. And they had more people coming from blood donors and bone marrow than they'd ever had. They had to start turning people away. And the other schools caught on to it. And they started a website, Sarah's Drive for Hope, had half a million people look at the website. And those blood drives and bone marrows were everywhere. And since then, there's been five children who've had successful bone marrow transplant because of Sarah's drive and are in full recovery today. I heard Kathy say that God spins everything into gold, everything into gold, an unshakable foundation for life. You see, we miss her every day. But you see, I got a home group and I got a sponsor and I've got you. And I've got a God and I've got an unshakable foundation for life. And we go through these things together. Huh? We go through these things together and life goes on. I want to thank the committee for the opportunity and privilege of being here this weekend. I want to thank you guys for your patience and kindness and listening to me. You know, I don't know what's going to happen from here on in and none of us know for sure, do we? See, just because we get sober, become members of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, life doesn't stop happening. People die. Relationships end. Businesses fail. People get sick. Life goes on. But I'll tell you some every single morning for many years now. First thing this morning, I say to my friend upstairs, I say, if you see fit, I sure would appreciate it if you keep me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because my dear friends, there's no place in this whole world I'd rather be than right here with Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.